morning, church. Some of you are already asking the question as you look up at the screen, what happened to 1 Samuel? Well, um, for many weeks, many, many weeks, uh, there's a growing sense of urgency in me building in my soul. Uh, really, you would, you would uh, consider it a burden uh, because I've come to believe that we, as a church body, as a local church body, are a group of people who studies the Word of God faithfully. And we enjoy the process of discovery. But, there's always a but in there. But, we are not a church who obeys that Word with the same enthusiasm and vigor with which we study. We pursue the truth and we will continue to pursue it, but we don't always do it. And that's a problem. As a corporate entity, we're not doing the truth that we read in the Scriptures. Now, some of you are, and, and, but I think many of us are not. And when it comes to this reality, the Bible tells us some things. In John 8, 31 and 32, uh, Jesus said to the Jews who have believed him, if you abide, if you live, if you continually dwell in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free, free to do what? Free to sin more? No. Free to walk in the fullness of newness of life? Free to walk in the gifts that God has given you? Free to walk in obedience to the commandments of Scripture? Many of us are not free in the Spirit to walk in that obedience, which would indicate to me, according to this passage, that we only have a cursory understanding of the truth, not a firm life experience gained from living out the truth. So There's a difference here. There's, there's, a, there's a truth that we know in our minds, and there's a truth that we live. And, and, and I'm pushing us towards the second. Romans 12, Paul says this in, in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, my, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because that's your spiritual worship. What we're doing right now, what we just did as we sang together, that's wonderful, but that's not the fullness of our worship. Our worship, Paul says, is to live a, a life that's a living sacrifice, a holy life, one that is acceptable to God. And then he goes on to say, so don't be conformed anymore to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that by testing, constant testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what's acceptable, what is perfect. Now don't show me your hands this morning, but answer honestly in your hearts, how many of you who are here in the room this morning would claim that you daily are cognizant of the call to offer up your life as a sacrifice to Jesus and that you're actively engaging in pursuing him instead of letting the culture conform you to its image? How many of you, just in your hearts, don't, don't raise your hands, just you say, yes, Lord, that's me, or no, Lord, that's not me. I, I want it to be me, but, it's, but I can't honestly say that. See, see, James warns us, James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter in chapter 4, verse 17, warns us with a very dire warning. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, doesn't actually do the right thing that they know that they should be doing, to him it is sin. That's, a, that's heavy. I think most of us know what the right things are. We're just not doing them. And folks, I'm, I'm asking the question, am I, I'm asking this of me, am I living with this level of awareness and intentionality, or am I just studying the Bible and enjoying the knowledge for its own sake? Because that's dangerous. Am I, am I passing my decision-making on how I spend my days through this grid that the Word sets up? And the, and the simplest reason that each and every one of us ought to be living with that level of intentionality and intensity is because of what Jesus has already done for us. I, I'm not pushing us to a place to say, we've got to earn Jesus's respect. He loves us, but, but there's another level. We got to get there. And we know, you know, it's not that. It's not that. His work is complete. 
His work is finished. And that should move us to this level of intentionality. We're not trying to earn anything from him. The motive is gratitude for what he's already done. He's the, he's the one that reminds us in John's gospel that if we love him, we will we'll obey. We'll keep his commandments. So, so here we are as a, as a corporate entity, as a local body of Christ, saying we love you, Jesus. We sing these songs. We love you, Lord. And then I, I'm just asking the question, are our lives the other six days of the week reflecting what we say in our worship? And I want to move us to the place where there's consistency <clears throat> so why stop for Samuel? Why engage in a lengthy, probably 18-plus month study of the Gospels? I think the reason is this, because seeing and understanding the intentionality of Jesus is essential to building disciples in the church. You're going to get a lot from Paul. You're going to get some stuff from John and, and, and the Gospels. But where we really need to focus for a season is in the life and ministry of Jesus. And maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you feel like I'm preaching to the choir. If you're here and it is your joy, it is your consistent joy to walk in obedience and to make disciples who make disciples, I want to just stop. I want to affirm you as strongly as I can. That is exactly the call of Jesus. That's exactly what every Christian should be doing. But if you're like most people in the church in America today, you, you likely feel like there's, there's, there's more to the Christian walk that you haven't attained to, and you don't really quite know how to move in that direction or how to engage with the life of Jesus and all that he wants for us as his people. That's what this series is about. That's what we're going to explore. I want Emmaus Road Church to be a church that produces mature, Christ-like disciples of Jesus. Mature, not just, not just filled with information, not just filled with all the right information, but mature. We're living in a way that reflects the heart of Jesus. And that means we need to understand and embrace discipleship the way Jesus did it, which is precisely what we're setting about to do. Along the way, you're going to be challenged to engage with new skill sets like how, how to share your personal testimony if you don't already know how to do that. Or uh, we'll talk about why small groups are essential to a healthy church. Uh, what does it look like to be discipled and then to disciple other people? These are all facets of this series, and, and all of these are simply a means to an end. The end is a life that reflects the love and power of Jesus. That's what we want. That's what makes us effective in this world. And to do this, we're going to engage with a special tool some of you might not be familiar with. It's called a Harmony of the Gospels. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll send out an email this week, and, and I'll post on social media uh, a link. Or you, can, you can get your own copy of A Harmony of the Gospels. But it's simply taking all four gospel accounts and laying them out chronologically as the events happen in real time, and then seeing those four gospels side by side in, on a page as, as the events unfold. It's an incredible tool, and it gives us uh, really good insight into the life and ministry of our Lord. A harmony of the gospel gives us a richer, more complete picture of the life and ministry of Jesus, and it helps us uncover much of the why. Why, why did Jesus do things this way? Why did, he, why did he do this? Why did he, right? We, we want to get to the why and Jesus' intentionality. So let me give you some of the backstory this morning. Um, when, when Jen and I, there you are, honey. <laughs> Point over here. Marcus, when Marcus and I were still dating. No, when Jen, there's Jen. When <laughs> Jen and I, Marcus and I have not started dating, and we never will. I still love you, bro. Um, Lacey's like, whoo, okay. When Jen and I were still dating, I responded to the Lord's call in my life to go into full-time ministry. And I joined the staff of, you ready? Big name, Worldwide Discipleship Association. Now, no ministry today would choose that name. But this, this was birthed in the 1960s before I was born. Um, so Worldwide Discipleship Association, rooted in Fayetteville, Georgia, where I grew up. Jen came on staff later when we were married. And we started off ministering in the college Sunday school class where we had met each other. And we were there for a while. And then WDA assigned us to the ministry at the University of Georgia. Go dogs! 
Not, no, not the purple puppies. That's not, those aren't real dogs. Sorry, folks. Red and black. That's what I'm talking about. And, and so we started, we started with that college Sunday school. We went to the University of Georgia. Uh, we were there for, for 11 years ministering to college students, evangelizing and, and discipling. And the ministry that we worked for was founded by a guy named Carl Wilson. Now, Carl Wilson worked really closely with Bill Bright. I don't know if you know that name. Bill Bright is the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And, and so Bill and Carl, Carl was on staff. He was his number two. And one day Carl came to Bill and said, gosh, Bill, all these college kids and high school kids are coming to Christ in droves. What are we doing with all these kids who are coming to Christ? How are we discipling them? And in typical Bill Bright fashion, if, you, if you've read anything about him, he just replied to Carl. He said, that's a great question, Carl. Why don't you go start a ministry and figure out how to disciple all these high school and college kids. And that's what Carl did. He started Worldwide Discipleship Association. And he based the whole philosophy of ministry on how Jesus took 12 men from being illiterate, blue-collar workers to being men who, by the power of Jesus, changed the world. And then that Lord put the, the Lord put the vision in us, and we, we, we had moved to Athens we, when Noah was just four months old. There's Noah in the back. He was four months old. And we spent 11 years evangelizing and discipling college students. Part of our training, the training itself for the staff was three years, was an in-depth study of this harmony of the Gospels to understand the intentionality of Jesus and how he made disciples who would then, those disciples would continue the process of making disciples. See, it's not enough to just to make a disciple. We want to make disciples who make disciples. It's got to be passed on, Right. And, and, and so this reality is, we're going to come back to this again and again in this series. We'll talk about the why, why Jesus said what he said, why he did what he did at those particular moments in the Gospels, because his level of intentionality is incredible. So let's get some grounding under us regarding the Gospel accounts. We're talking about the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the greatest man who ever walked the earth. And, and so people will ask the question, why are there four Gospels? What's that about? Well, the answer is each of the four Gospels presents Jesus Christ from a different point of view or with a different emphasis. Think about this. You guys all know where McDonald's is right up here at the intersection, uh, fi Highway 532 and, and going across over to the high school. So, so think about a f there are four eyewitnesses to the same traffic accident right out at that light uh, at, at McDonald's and Highway 532. And all four witnesses attest to the same events that are recorded but each personality rec recalls particular details. So one witness recalls that one red car ran through the light going northbound and hit a white minivan that was crossing through the intersection. But another eyewitness remembers that there were four cars at the intersection when the collision happened. One of the employees that was handing food out of the drive-thru window at McDonald's remembers that the white minivan spun around and ended up in the southbound shoulder and smoke was pouring out from under the hood of the, the van. Now, if you're a good police officer, you, you're, you're not going to look at those three accounts and conclude that there was no accident or that there was no red car that ran the light. They're all lying. They just made stuff up. No, no, no. A good police officer is going to use all the eyewitness testimony available to piece together a more comprehensive and complete picture of what actually happened. And that is what you have in the four gospel accounts. You have four different eyewitnesses corroborating the same events and the same words from different perspectives, from different points of view. And so modern skeptics and liberal theologians look at the eyewitness accounts, they throw them out because of supposed disagreement, but historians and theologians and us, by compiling these accounts, are able to put together a more complete picture of what actually happened. There are no contradictions in the Gospels. On the contrary, there's an incredible corroboration. So let me give you just a quick snapshot of the four Gospels in comparison to one another. Matthew. Matthew was a Levite. He's of the tribe of Levi, that's the priestly tribe, and he emphasizes Jesus as the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Each of the subtleties of his design of his gospel supports this primary theme. His genealogy in Matthew begins with the first Jew, Abraham, and continues down to David and the royal line, down to the legal father of Jesus, who was Joseph, not the birth father, but the legal father. Matthew's emphasis is on the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. 
And now, many people don't know, Matthew was a customs official. So he would have been well-versed in shorthand, which would have been an essential asset in a culture that didn't have the advantage of printing and copiers and all the things that we take for granted. And Matthew focuses on what Jesus said and includes extensive discourses, which he was probably able to take down verbatim because he, he knew shorthand. Matthew's first miracle is the cleansing of a leper, and that's, uh, leprosy was the Jewish metaphor for sin itself. So the focus of Matthew's gospel is on what Jesus said, and he ends with the resurrection. He ends with the resurrection. Now what about Mark? Mark was the amanuensis of Peter. Amanuensis is a Greek word. It means secretary. It's somebody who took dictation. Peter was an illiterate fisherman. He was a blue-collar worker. He couldn't probably read very well. He almost certainly couldn't write. And so Mark was his, his secretary. He wrote for Peter. So you've got Peter's gospel in Mark. We call it the gospel according to Mark. Mark just wrote down Peter's firsthand account. He is, his is the only gospel with no concern for pedigree or genealogy because Jesus is pictured as the obedient servant or slave of God. He focuses on what Jesus did. Mark's gospel deals in graphic images because think, Peter's a guy of action, right? I love Peter because he always has one or both feet in his mouth. His action first, I'm, I'm just going to do the thing, and then he always has to dial it back. He's always got to apologize, and I'm like, I can relate to that. It's, it's, it's the gospel of Peter, right? And so it, it, P, Mark's gospel is like a shooting script for an action movie. It's like scene, scene, scene. You know, it's, it's constant movement, constant action. The focus is on what Jesus did, and Mark's gospel ends with the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So we got two. Here's three. Luke. Luke was a Gentile. Did you know that? He's not Jewish. And he was a physician. He's a doctor. And so his gospel reflects a very distinctive point of view as he emphasizes Jesus as the Son of Man. His genealogy begins with Adam, who was the first man, right? And so from Abraham, so he goes from Adam all the way to Abraham and from Abraham to David. His list is identical with that of Matthew, but when he gets to David, he doesn't track through Solomon, who is the first surviving son of Bathsheba, but he tracks through a different son, Nathan, who is the second surviving son of Bathsheba. And he continues through Heli, who was the father of Mary. Now remember, Joseph is the son-in-law of Heli. As a Gentile, Luke, his emphasis is very different. His emphasis is Christ's humanity, which is why his genealogy comes through Mary's family. That's the human side of Jesus. Right? He's, he's God and man. So he's going to track through the human side. <coughs> and Luke's first recorded miracle is the expulsion of a demon, which is a very human concern, one that we would do better to remember and consider in our modern enlightened, modern enlightened age. People don't even think about demons anymore. They just do lots of drugs, and then they're like, I'm not sure why all these weird things are happening to me. It's called demons. You've opened yourself up, right? So the focus of Luke is on what Jesus felt. You'll see that more than anything else. And it ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is cool because Luke wrote this gospel, and then the promise of the Holy Spirit comes in what book? Acts. Then who wrote Acts? Luke. Luke, Luke chapter 2. Luke volume 2, right? So, now we got three gospels. Let's go four. I think there are four. Are there four gospels? Yeah, okay. John. John has a very distinctive point of view because he emphasizes Jesus as the Son of God. His focus is on who Jesus was, not what he did, not what he felt, but who he was. His genealogy is that of the preexistent one, constituting these opening verses in his gospel, which is organized around seven miracles, seven discourses, seven I am statements. Seven is the number of perfection or completion in the Bible. John's first miracle involves the use of water for purification changing the, the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, right? And uh, it's a private demonstration to the disciples that Jesus is preeminent, even over the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a better priest. The focus of John is on what Jesus was. He was the Son of God. And it ends with the promise of his return. Now, it's interesting because John wrote some more letters, and then he wrote the book at the end of the Bible called Revelation. 
And so there is this promise of a return. Nice bridge right over to Revelation. Now we're going to go look <coughs> at the introductions to both Luke and John. Because remember we said we're going to read the Gospels in chronological order as they occur. And when they occur simultaneously, we're going to look at them together. But when we start the Gospels, John and Luke start with preambles. And, and we're going to look at those this morning. So, But before we do that, I want to add one more thing to this comparative part of the study of the four Gospels. Because, uh, now follow me, okay? What do Ezekiel's vision, Isaiah's vision, and John's revelation all have in common? There's a Chick-fil-A gift card in it for you if you can answer this. <laughs> That's a pretty obscure question, like Bible trivia. I'll tell you what they have in common. Four faces. Who said it? Are you, somebody looking at the computer screen back there, checking my slide. Four faces around the throne. Do you know that? Four faces. It's interesting, every time we encounter these super angels, variously called cherubim or seraphim, that surround the throne of God, we note that there are four faces involved. There's always a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle around the throne. Those four faces. I find it incredibly interesting that each of these faces are suggestive of each of the four Gospels. Matthew presenting the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark, the ox, the classic symbol of servanthood. Luke, the son of man. And John, the son of God in the heavens, the eagle. Ah, just something to chew on. And it's almost like God's really intentional in his word or something. So with that, with that in hand, let's look at the opening verses of Luke and John. So Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke writes, inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good also to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we see that Theophilus was taught the gospel. He was taught the history of Jesus. And so this, this, this writer, Luke, is writing to Theophilus to give him an ordered account, eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So we see the historicity of Luke's gospel right out of the box. Luke was a historian. And so he's set about to, to create a compilation of eyewitness accounts. He got them all firsthand. This is not, if you heard any uh, liberal scholars, liberal theologians will say, well, it's like the telephone game. You ever play the telephone game when you were a little kid? And you got the whole circle of kids in the room, and then whisper the one thing to the, to the kid. Uh, tell them my mom is really nice. And then by the time it gets around the room, it's like my cat loves rice. It's something weird, Right. It's all mixed up and garbled because every, everybody doesn't quite hear it the same way and they change a word or they do it. If you're the evil kid in class, you do it on purpose, right? It's like, oh, what is this, this word that you just told me? sounds like this word. I'll, I'll change it. And it, you know, we just, I, I was that kid, by the way. Um, so, but this is not the telephone game. This is not the telephone game. This is a compilation of eye, firsthand eyewitness accounts. You don't, you don't need to listen to the liberal scholars on this. They, they really, their, their presuppositions, where they start is, is way, they don't even believe that the Bible is, they don't even believe in God. Why would they affirm the truth of God's word if they don't even believe in God? See, see Luke wanted to write out an orderly account, and literally in order, of the life and ministry of Jesus for Theophilus. And the purpose is certainly about the gospel message and Christianity, um, but Theophilus wanted evidence to support his belief system. He wanted to know that the things that he believed were grounded in historical reality, that they weren't just myths. This is the purpose of Luke. So we've got the intro to Luke, and then here's the introduction to John. It's a little longer, John 1, 1 to 18. You guys will be familiar with this probably. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made 
that was made. That's, um, that's a reflection of Greek and the, 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 the way that the language works is all just like right in English. We don't talk that way, but I love the, I love the flow of the opening of John. It says, without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Jesus made everything. You can just say it like that. Jesus made everything. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So that the incarnation fundamentally means two things for us, at least two things. God loves us, and he wants to have a right, us to have a right relationship with him. That's, that's evident from the very get-go. That's number one. Number two, human beings have intrinsic value and worth being made in the image of God. Now, if you struggle with that, first I would say reject Darwinism. That would help you immensely. Um, but if you struggle with that, simply consider that Jesus, even at this moment, is still in his glorified state in a human body. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. He could have chosen to just, after the resurrection, say, I just don't need this anymore. I just, you know, just want to go back to how things were before, you know, before and no, he, he, is, he has chosen to remain in a glorified human body, which means he's chosen to forever identify with us. That's, a, that's astounding. That's a good thing. And so John begins, in, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and that word was with God, and the word was God. And then you compare that to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created and, and so we've got to understand this Jewish idea that uh, the idea of truth is very tied to the history of a thing in the Jewish mind. That if, if it's not grounded in history, it's not true. And, and you see this all throughout the Old Testament where Moses or, or Joshua or David in the Psalms uh, reminds the people of something that God did in this place. Remember, God would, when we were here, God did this. It's always tied to history. It's always tied to something that happened previously. And so there's a question for you to ponder in John 1.1. In the beginning, God. Well, what was before in the beginning? You know what Scripture says? In John 17.24, John tells us that there was love before in the beginning. Love among the triunity of the Godhead. We're told in John 17, 5, there was glory and there was relationship before in the beginning. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, Paul writes that there was a choice and a plan and, and that there was will and volition before in the beginning. In Titus 1, 2, we see that there's a promise before in the beginning. And that last one's particularly interesting to me when you stop and think, to whom the promise was being made because mankind had not come upon the scene yet when these things existed. That means that this promise is from God the Father to the Son and the Spirit and love and glory shared among the Trinity. It's, it's just it's, the triune God was there from before in the beginning. The Logos, Jesus, the Word, the Father and the Spirit together in perfect fellowship. The Father loved the Son and there was a plan. There was communication happening within the Trinity. Promises are made. And without the doctrine of the Trinity, none of this makes any sense at all. It just doesn't make sense. Nor would the explanation of why we have a personality or why we communicate the way we do. It's all rooted in Trinitarian theology. A personal someone, something, is responsible for everything that is. And that stands in contrast to the notion being taught by many today that nothing made everything. Yeah, you somebody's going to have to explain that to me. Everything came from nothing. Really? We see the phrase, the word was God. Now, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses like to mangle this particular verse in attempts to paint Jesus as a created being, namely asserting that he is Michael the archangel. Okay, the problem is, one, well, there's only one. Uh, you, you can't make it say the word was a God, like, like the Watchtower version of the Bible does. Here's why. Because in Greek, there's no definitive article that could be translated a there's not one. So it can't possibly be in the text. And the moment you add an A, he was a God into the text, 
You cross over from monotheism, we believe in one God, into polytheism, many gods. Because if Jesus is just a God, that necessarily implies there are more gods. So Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism are polytheistic. They are not Christian. Just, just, right, just, just on that basis alone, we are monotheists. There is one God. They are polytheists. Okay? So, so right out of the gate. Um, make sure you mention that when they knock on the door, by the way. Um, we, we see here that Jesus is the agent of creation by the will of the Father. And you'll find verses that attribute creation to both of them, and rightfully so, because the opening verses of the Bible say, let us make man in our image. There's plurality in the Godhead, three in one. And Paul echoes this in Colossians 1. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. That should just wreck you. There are invisible things that you don't even know about. And Jesus made them. He just spoke them into existence. He says, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He's preeminent. He's above. Um, and, and, and through him, get this, all things hold together. Did you know that physicists just take for granted subatomic particles that they that they don't they don't fly apart nobody knows why they're like well maybe it's because of this or maybe it's no 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 all things hold together in him and he he holds all things together he is the head of the body he's the head of the church he's the beginning he's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent there's nothing above jesus there's nothing above jesus and so we just keep going in John's gospel. We'll just, just into the introduction. I'll keep you here till about 1.30, 12, 2 o'clock this afternoon. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. You're going to see later in John, John 14.6, Jesus will tell us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through him. Have you ever stopped to think about what it, what it means when John says that life was the light of men? Do you know, do you know I'm, I'm weaving physics into the sermon this morning, but if you know anything about light, it helps us in this because light brings things into view. I don't know if you know this about light, but light itself is invisible. You can't see light. And uh, several people are looking up going, I see lights. No, no, no. No, you see the light bulb and you see things by the light, but you cannot see light. We can only see the effects of light as it touches things. Is that, is that weird? It, it, light, by the way, is timeless because it moves at the speed of light, conveniently enough. <laughs> it moves at the speed of light. And, and so it's, it's, it's crazy. It's timeless. You can't see it. You can't touch it. But it, it's here. And we need it. And by it, we see things. Ooh. That's a great analogy. That's, that's, that's a metaphor going on right in there. It's, it's, it's com comparing Jesus to light starts to make more sense, right? He is the light of the world. Um, and so John 1, 5, that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, which immediately makes me think of Matthew 4, 16. People dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Right? This is the intro to Matthew and the, and the, the coming of Jesus uh, in, a, in a human body. A direct quote out of Isaiah 9, which is a messianic prophecy. And here's John alluding to this as well. Think about how this relates to David when he writes Psalm 23. He's speaking about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But in Isaiah's prophecy and in Matthew and in John, um, the people of God are living there. <laughs> They're living there. And, and so the darkness of uh, the valley of the shadow of death is not supposed to be the stopping place for God's people. That's not the place where we stop and set up shop and build our huts and, and live. We, we do have to journey through it, but it's not our destination. Amen. And so John, John goes on in verse 6. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he's talking about John the, the Baptist. And, and he says, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. It's, it's almost like a parenthetical break in the cadence here as John the Baptist is introduced. And we see that he was sent from God. He's a witness about Jesus, who is the light. And John the Baptist was doing this even in the womb. Even in the womb. It shows up, right? And he hears the voice of Mary, and John's like bouncing. He's like, woo, I don't even know how to talk, but I'm excited because Jesus is in, right? That's, that's crazy. That's crazy. He was not the light, and he's quick to confirm that. Even when people come to be baptized, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not him. I'm not even, I'm not even fit to untie his sandal straps, right? So, so John, John keeps going. John's gospel, John 1, 9, the true light that gives light to everybody is coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. <laughs> he came to his own, to his own people, to the Jews, and they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe on his name, check this out, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. He gives us the right to become his children, to be adopted into his family. That's what salvation is. It's adoption into the family of God. So John the disciple puts our attention back on Jesus and who, who was the light. Jesus was the light. Note here that Jesus was in the world. This is an important distinction. We'll elaborate later in chapter 15 because the world did not know him and his own people did not receive him. This has rumblings for me of the, the story of Beauty and the Beast, right? By the way, you know that every good story is rooted in the story, right? Every good story, every story that we love, every epic that we just are moved by is rooted in the, in the scriptures, rooted in the truth of Jesus, it's, it's like Beauty and the Beast and the old hag who comes humbly to the door of the castle to talk to the prince, and he can only judge by what he sees with his eyes. And so he turns her away and is subsequently cursed because he does not recognize her, and he shuns her based on her appearance. He only looked on the outward, not the inward heart. It's, it's, it's the story of Jesus. He's the the one knocking at the door, right? And you'll find in the stories that we love these, these undercurrents because these truths are borrowed from the story, which is true, right? All the best stories borrow from the story. John says that if we receive Jesus, we are born of God. John 3.16 reminds us that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. So when, when you hear well-meaning, well-intending people say, well, we're all God's children, you need to just gently correct them. You're You're not. We're not all God's children. You, you can be adopted into the family. You can become God's child. <laughs> See, it's another story. It's like Pinocchio. It's like Pinocchio. You know the little wooden boy who wanted to be real? And in, in the same way, we are made and the humans are made in the image of God, but not of the same substance, right? Geppetto made a little boy for himself, but it was wood. It wasn't human. Not of the same substance. It'd be like me going to the garage and carving a statue of me in miniature. Oh, wait, there's Noah. Uh, he's a real boy. He's a real man. Uh, you're right? But, but we were once wooden. We were, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. But our father pursued us and rescued us, and now we get to be real boys and girls. Right? How cool. The, all the best stories take from the story. John, John 1.14, we'll wrap this up, I promise. I won't keep you here all day. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And for, for from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, no, nobody's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So how does that work? Nobody's ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's side. But the Father is God, but there's a God at the... It's a poly, no, 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 Trinity. Trinity. 
He has made him known. Jesus has revealed who God is and what he is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Study the life of Jesus. So the second person of the triune God had became incarnate, carne asada. I want some meat. I'm hungry. Same, same root word, carne, right? He became flesh. He incarnated. He became flesh. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. Jesus was 100% God, and he was 100% man. Not 50-50, not a 70-30 split, 100-100. Fully God, fully man, God with skin on. Isn't doctrine fun? And, when, and then we have this bridging summary from the Old Testament to the New Testament in verses 17 and 18. We've all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, Old Covenant, Old Testament. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's a powerful statement. Stop and just, just think about some of the things that the law of God does. It convicts us of sin. It, it, it renders us guilty before God. And then here's God saying, here's grace. Here's unmerited favor if you'll just put your faith in me. You don't have to be under the law. You can, you can walk above. You can walk in the power of the Spirit. Crazy. Just crazy. In Galatians 3, Paul says in verse 23 and 24, Before faith came, we were captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law, here's what the law does. He says it's our guardian. The, the Greek word is, uh, we would translate it roughly like a schoolmaster. You know, kids don't want to go to school. And they, they walk to school. Huh? They might not make it to school. They might end up at the arcade. I don't know. That might be autobiographical. But um, what you do is you have somebody, like in the Greek culture, they would have a house servant, somebody whose responsibility it was to walk the kid to school, make sure they got there, went in the door. You know, just don't just like stop halfway. Like I can see them; they made it to school. No, no, no. Get them in the classroom, and then and then that person would meet them after school and walk them back home so they didn't get into trouble. That person, uh, the schoolmaster. This is the image Paul uses that the law would grab you by the ear and say, "No, you're you're going here." The law brings us to the foot of the cross. It's our guardian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith because we couldn't keep the law. So the law was saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. No, stop that. Quit that. You're being, you're being bad, right? That's what the law did. And then Jesus came on the scene. He says, but there's grace. This was the plan all along. Same, same, same context, Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, what, what should we say then? That the law is sin? No way. He says, by no means. Yet, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. See, the law brings the knowledge of sin. So I, I, he says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't said, don't covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, pro produced in me all kind of covetousness. What, what happens? Parents, you got, you got a, 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 a seven, eight-year-old kid, six, seven, eight, and you say, don't do that. What happens to the kid? Oh, I never noticed the thing you didn't want me to do before. Now all I want to do is touch the thing, right? We did this experiment with our kids when they were little, you know, like three, even like three and four. Just like go around the corner, hey, don't touch that thing. And then like peek around the corner. And what do they do? They're like, I, didn't, I wasn't even aware that the thing was in the room, but now all I want to do is touch it. Because the law, it, it brings the awareness of sin, right? It brings us to the place. We go, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know that that was in me that I wanted to do bad things. But now that I've said, somebody said, don't do bad things, I want to do bad things. And that's, that's God's purpose, to bring us an awareness of our need for Jesus, right? For apart from the law, sin is dead. But, but that's why God gave us the law. Aren't you glad we're no longer under the old covenant, under the old system? How many of you are glad this morning we've been given grace? Amen. That's two passages. We just went through two, and we've explored this morning. Those are really important uh, as a bridge to this new covenant, this new testament. So I want to give you just a quick preview of what's to come in the weeks and months ahead. Remember, I'm not interested in doling out information or, or truth for the sake of consumption only. This is about us becoming more like Jesus. And we as God's redeemed people are supposed to consume the truth. We need to take it in, but we need to let it change us. 
change who we are. And that's not all. We're also held responsible for the truth we've been given. See, you coming to church is a dangerous thing. If you're not interested at all in living a life that is pleasing to the Lord God, you're in a dangerous place because the more you hear the truth, the more responsible and culpable you are before God. So um, remember, responsible is able to respond. That's good because it means you can take what you're hearing and you can put it into practice. And I can help you with the application of these truths and principles, but you have to decide whether to walk in holiness and whether to grow spiritually. So I'll just give you uh, a quick look at the grid that we'll be using for weeks and weeks and weeks. You'll get really tired of seeing it uh, many more times in the months ahead. And if you've already been through Next Steps, if you're a, a covenant member of our church, you've already seen this. You probably have a copy at home. But just take a look. Five phases of growth. This framework is built on Jesus' ministry with his disciples. And so starting on uh, my right, your left, uh, no, sorry, up and down, up and down. Spark, I got to turn around, look. Oh, that's not the thing. Last slide. Last slide. There we go. Yeah, okay. So what we want to do in people is we want to spark growth. And, and it's not spelled exactly right, but uh, we'll get over it. So, so. In everything that Jesus did in his ministry, he put his guys in situations that were, maybe they were over their heads, you know. They, they got into trouble or they didn't know what to do. They had to pray. That, you know, he put them in situations to grow them. He, he taught them to pray. He, he encouraged them to go out and pray with others. He prayed for them. There was accountability, which is not just sin management, by the way. You know, we've, we've turned accountability into just like, I'm going to, it's almost like we're Roman Catholics. We just show up to our accountability partner every week and say, well, I did the thing. Okay, just say three Hail Marys and you'll be fine, right? It's not, that's not, that's not accountability. Accountability is helping each other stop doing the things that we shouldn't do, right? Um, so, so these, these five realities, relationships are essential to growth in the, in, in Christlikeness. You can't do it in a void. You can't do it uh, by, on your own. And then content which is what you're getting right now um, every, every Sunday. But those five things are, are the ways that God grows us, all five of those being present in your life in some capacity. And then there's this continuum at the top. We're, we're, we're trying to grow towards Christ-likeness. And so like new people who don't know Jesus are just getting connected to the church and just getting connected to the life of Jesus. Well, you know what, you know what Scripture says about those folks? It says they're spiritual babies. And so you don't hand a spiritual baby a shovel, you know, you don't, you don't hand a baby a shovel and say, go dig a trench. You, you, you recognize where people are in their spiritual development and you meet them where they are and then you help them take the next step, the reasonable step. You know, I, I just, I had this moment, I just tried it for fun when Noah was like three or four. I don't remember what it was. I handed him some tool and, and he, he broke the thing that I wanted him to fix, you know, and I was like, oh, that was a dumb thing to do because he was three and he didn't know how to do it. And I was a new dad and still learning. And, and that's what happens when you, you hand toddlers chainsaws. Don't, don't <laughs> give them chainsaws, right? There's a, there's a progression here. It's very intentional. And we'll unpack this in the days and weeks ahead. But, but we're going to get connected to Jesus and his people. When, when, when we're sharing the gospel, like we're going to do this summer, and we have, uh, by the way, I met with the Chamber of Commerce finally. We have a new director of the chamber. And, uh, and I asked her, um, I noticed that we were, there are a lot of things on the calendar in Stanwood that are centered around bars and um, after hours, things for adults. Uh, do you think we could do some family-friendly stuff? And she lit up. She was like, oh. Yeah, let's plan some stuff. Um, she said, do you have a bouncy house? I was like, yeah, we do. And I can get two more. It'll be a party. And so we're going we're gonna to do some stuff. It's going to be fun. But, but that, those kind of events are just to get people connected to Jesus, connected to his people, right? And as they get connected, they, they, they come to faith at some point, and they start to put down roots as new believers. And as they walk with the Lord, they begin to own their faith take responsibility for themselves, and then they walk it out. And, and eventually, if they, if they just keep going in, in their, their passion about ministry, they, they end up being thriving leaders in the church. And that's the progression. I don't know where you are on that progression, but I hope that you're on it. I hope that you're on it. Maybe you're just at that first phase. You're just getting connected to Jesus and his people. But at every 
every pro, every step of the way, all three of those, I mean, all five of those things, you know, situations, prayer, accountability, relationships, and content, those are all happening all the time. And the goal of this is Christ-like maturity. That's it. Christianity is a faith that begets life. So no more of what I call eunuch Christianity. Whether by choice or whatever, we don't seem all that interested in reproducing. But we've got to. We live in a community. We live in a region where increasingly, I think, what's the stat? Like 2% of the U.S. population like readily affirms that they are Christians. Like we're down, we're down that far. So um, we need we need to be about the gospel. We need to be about discipleship, and that's as far as we're going to get this week. Um, what Jesus wants for us is not just that we're saved, having trusted His sufficient sacrifice through grace alone through faith. He wants us to go on to love and good deeds in His name. He wants His kids, you and me to grow up in Christ-likeness and to increasingly become more like him. So let's stop and let's ask the Lord to help us do that this morning. I'll stop talking. Let's, let's go into prayer. And, and we're going to uh, partake in communion together as well. So um, if, if you guys are serving communion, we'd, we'd go ahead and get ready. Father, we just thank you for your word. And this, this direction as a church, um, I just confess to you, Lord, it's overwhelming. Um, to think about going through four Gospels simultaneously, and not just the text and the meaning of the text, but, uh, but building those paradigms and building those events and, and doing the things and, and encouraging one another in the days ahead to engage in the doing of ministry, not just the hearing, not just the receiving, not, just, not even just the knowing. In fact, we're worse off if we know and we don't obey. So, Lord, would you move us? Would you, would you motivate us? Would you prod us uh, to, to be about your business in these days, even if it's scary, even if it's painful for us, that we would walk in obedience as your people? And, Lord, we just thank you for the privilege of loving and serving you. So, Lord, we, we, as we continue in our worship, as we take communion together, we want to just stop and, and remember you and, and uh, that you are the centerpiece of all of this, our relationship with you, our love for you, and your love for us, which, which came first. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. So, ushers, if you want to go ahead and, and uh, bring the... Jesus wants for us not just that we would be saved. And if you're not saved, if you've not put your, your trust in Jesus for salvation, I pray that you do that even today. I'll, I'll hang around down here. And if, if that's you, I'd love to talk with you. But that's not all he wants for us. He, he wants us to trust him by grace alone through faith. But he also wants us to go on to love and good deeds in his name. He wants us to grow up in Christ-likeness. He wants his kids, you and me, to grow and to become more like him. So let's agree that that's our pursuit as a church, not just to know the truth, but to do the truth and become more like the Jesus we love. Amen. Amazro Church, you are sent.